Hi, y'all. You're listening to In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile. I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. My Uncle Paul is back a second time by the woodpile to share some more stories and thoughts from his life. This time around, we talk fainting trumpet players, creepy evangelists, a broken leg chicken, the fine art of dumpster diving, among other things. But first up, how a good spit can help anyone sing better. I have hope. I have hope. Growing up in church, we talked about this a little bit uh, on the last time we spoke, but there was a lot of characters that, uh, well, they end up in the church because of maybe they are seeking the truth and all that, but the church also is kind of a magnet for, I don't know how you say it, uh, a nut magnet at times, we'll say. And I think really that's probably a good thing. You, you, you want to be welcoming and inclusive, but a couple people that I remember you mentioning, uh, one was uh, a gal named Jenny Hooper. Yes. Well, Jenny Hooper, to us as kids, seemed to be ancient. We thought of her as really, really old. But as I'm approaching 70 years old, uh, she probably wasn't that old. She probably was in her 50s. I don't know. But she loved to sing. Jenny would always uh, want to sing a solo. And so she um, had this routine that when she got up to sing a solo, she would get up there and stand at the pulpit and clear and cough and and uh, try to get ready to uh, to sing, and then she would uh, had a hanky with her and, and handkerchief and she would kind of spit in it and uh. then she was ready to sing her solo. <laughs> so <laughs> so uh, one time we remember that she got up to sing and she did the whole routine of clearing her throat and coughing and then getting ready to spit. And she did not have a handkerchief with her. And so (laughs) she tore out the last page of the hymnal and uh, spit in it (laughs) and watered it up, watered it up and sang her solo. Oh my goodness. And we of course laughed at it at the time. And now we recall how that was so Jenny Hooper and, (laughs) But she was not one to be teased. She didn't. Uh, she didn't appreciate that. <laughs> so she didn't get in trouble for uh, property damage. Uh, no, I. You know, we we just laughed about it. You know, I mean, what's the missing last page? Doesn't have anything on it in the hymnal. <laughs> yeah. There was another guy named Mr. Reber. Yeah, uh, Mr. Reber had transferred from a, a more legalistic holiness uh, church to our church. And uh, he actually was kind of a wealthy guy. He had a lot of different cars. He had drive to church. Uh, but his legalism that we uh, would laugh about was that um, he expected, if we were to sing a song, a hymn, that we would sing all the verses of the song that were in the hymnal. You couldn't get up and say, we're going to sing uh, number 72. We'll sing the first verse, third verse, and the fifth verse. If you did that, he would get upset and fold up his hymnal with a loud plump and then put it in the rack and sit there with his arms folded and refusing to sing. (laughs) Um, He kind of had an attitude. And that didn't keep us from... uh, 
changing what we wanted to do. I mean, we still would sing the, just a few verses of a hymn if that's what we wanted to do. And, <laughs> and then we'd watch him to see see what would happen. And for <laughs> folks who maybe didn't grow up in our tradition, some of these hymns had like six or seven verses and you know, a song could last up to like 10, 15 minutes if you sang them all. Yeah, I was reading about a, a song that Charles Wesley wrote, and there were like 21 verses to it. Of course, uh, we narrowed it down to about five or six <laughs> in the hymnal. Uh, but even then, you, you could you say, well, that's kind of a lot to sing. We, we'd like to move on with the service, so you would only sing maybe three of them. Right. <laughs> Who were some other characters that you remember? The... Um, church that I grew up in, Church of the Nazarene, was not uh, real formal, you might say. And so there would be occasion where someone would just uh, start shouting or giving a testimony or or they would say, I'd like for us to sing a certain song. And and that was that was okay. We, we would change things. And I remember in particular, we had a service and I can't remember exactly who was in charge of the service. It might've been an evangelist there, but we were singing and um, it, it became quite a revival spirit and people were shouting and running the aisles. And it was one of the first times and maybe only times that I saw my dad kind of get blessed uh, uncontrollably, uh, just laughing. He would laugh when he got blessed and mom would quietly cry when she got blessed. And, but then people were just, you know, yelling and, and shouting and what we call running the aisles. And and that was not all that out of character, uh, but I do remember in particular one time when that was quite a quite an occurrence. My brother David, uh, your dad, um, had a Sony recorder, reel-to-reel, and he recorded uh, one of the services, and we would play that over and over uh, just because we could and it was a, a tremendous uh, re- reminder of some things that happened in church maybe now is a good time to talk about the history of the nazarene church could you again for folks who just have no point of reference uh, give a you know a background of how they came into being yeah the church of nazarene as well as some other holiness churches began at the turn of the century from like 1890 into the early 1900s with the revivals that were spreading across the United States and around the world, I suppose. But there were tent meetings. And of course, in America, there was kind of the, the expansionism into the West of America. And so you had this these revivals that were spreading across the United States uh, with evangelists and things. And out of that was the uh, Church of Nazarene and some other holiness groups uh, would include Salvation Army is part of that group, uh, Assembly of God, Church of God, Wesleyan, Wesleyan Holiness, Pilgrim Holiness. There's a lot of uh, holiness churches that were formed out of that um, movement that happened spontaneously. So the Church of Nazarene officially says was started in 1908, but there were a lot of churches that were um, born out of the revival, uh, revivalism that happened in America. And then the Church of Nazarene just began to gather together churches of like mind and became a denomination out of that. It has roots in the Methodist Church 
Um, so if you trace back from the holiness churches back to through Methodism normally, and then uh, the, the Anglican Church, and so that would be the tree of uh, denominations that the Church of Nazarene is in. And John Wesley probably being the uh, I don't know how you would put it, like the the father of all of this in some ways. Can you explain why John Wesley basically became a, a figure that would lead a lot of people out of the, the Anglican Church, even though he himself never did this, but his after he died, that, that movement happened. What, what was different about him or what he was teaching? Well, he was teaching and preaching what we would call entire sanctification or holiness. Sometimes the word is used perfectionism, but it's not a good term because of we have the connotation of being perfect, absolutely perfect, scientifically perfect, and that's not the, the case. But anyways, um, he was preaching uh, a doctrine of a secondness to where one would become a Christian and then later on be filled with the Holy Spirit. It has a lot of different terms, uh, sanctification, entire sanctification, uh, being filled with the Spirit. He was teaching and preaching that and actually got kicked out of the Anglican Church where he would go to a church, an Anglican Church, and preach. And then after that, they say, you're no longer welcome to, to preach here anymore. So he started preaching outside uh, in the fields and, and I guess had quite a, quite a strong voice because hundreds would gather to hear him and could hear him uh, preaching. So he became the founder of the holiness movement back in England, um, and and that spread. Well, I was walking in the middle of the night, oh, so lonely. Yes, I was walking in the middle of the night, oh, so blue. Once I was walking in the middle of the night, dark as could be. But my God turned on the heavenly light, and now I see, I see the and another family and, and these folks I wouldn't consider nuts because uh, I have good memories of them uh, <laughs> they were a little less nuts we'll put it that way and this coming from a family of a couple nuts uh, the Gressers oh yeah now they were around for a long time as a kid I remember they you know babysitted me and uh, they were you know always kind and it was a lot of fun to go over to their houses so what are your memories of the Gresser family well, Bill and Ola Gresser were mom and dad Gresser. They were probably in their uh, 60s when I first met them, and he had worked in some sort of steel uh, factory, um, smelting factory there in Evansville. Raised uh, at least three sons and one daughter. There may have been four or, or six kids. I'm not sure how many they had. So the Gressers, there was at least one daughter and three of the sons that were part of my dad's church when he was pastoring. Gilbert and Margaret became really close friends to mom and dad. I know you're not supposed to have favorites in a church, but my mom and dad really just uh, were, were embraced by the Gressers and um, spent a lot of time at their house after church Sunday night, um, just kind of hanging out and laughing and telling jokes and singing and things like that. The Gressers I did not have any children at that time, but later on they adopted a couple of girls that they kind of, so they kind of uh, took us in as their kids. So it was really, we had a fun time. And I can remember uh, he had an old car he was working on, and then he had a reel-to-reel 
uh, recorder that it wasn't tape, it was a wire, that the wire was sensitized in some fashion, and he had recordings, and he would play those. That was fascinating. And then he also told us stories about being in, in the military and some of the funny things that happened to him. It seemed like um, most of the conversation had to be had to, uh, to be around either telling jokes or funny stories or laughing about something and singing. Uh, that was that's and eating. I'll I'll have to throw that in there. <laughs> so we just uh, enjoyed going to their house. The the sister, the the daughter of aggressors, was a very get talented um, pianist and had a wonderful touch on the piano. So I think mom was dad's favorite piano player, but uh, the aggressor girl <laughs> was right there because he loved to hear her play the piano. So it was a gifted family, and all they, they were all part of the church, and they loved, loved God, and so it was a really strong family that made up the church dad was pastoring. I probably shouldn't tell this story, but when I was learning how to drive, uh, you know, my dad was teaching me, and this is in the streets of Boonville, and uh, we came across a one-way, and I just looked down the, the one way that you, you would expect a car to come. And he said, nah, always look both ways. You never know if all aggressors in town. Apparently, <laughs> she, she didn't honor the uh, one way road system or something. <laughs> well, not just all aggressor. There are others that <laughs> don't pay attention to whether it's one way or not. I mean, I've had times when I was coming down one way and didn't realize it. So. People start honking at me. So, yeah, old aggressor just might be coming down the street. <laughs> you mentioned my dad. He was always, you know, uh, tinkering, we'll say, uh, with electronics yes. and that type of thing. Talk about some of the things that he came up with. And I know sometimes he used his knowledge to, to make pranks on other folks. He loved to play pranks. And as kids, we, we, we like to tease each other and play pranks on each other and hide behind the door and jump out. We, we were just always doing something, but David took it to a different level. Uh, he was very mechanical and just loved to do things. Um, and in particular, he developed this thing. Um, it's pretty simple if you think about it, but it was a hose, a little small hose. At the end of the hose was a balloon. Uh, and at the other end of the hose was a type of bottle that was plastic that you could squeeze. So if you were to squeeze the bottle, uh, the, the balloon on the other end would inflate. So he would um, rig that up to where it was under the tablecloth. And whenever there was a guest at our house, uh, he would rig that up to where the balloon was under the plate, on the edge of the plate, so that when the person started to get something from the, from their plate, it would it would pop up or it would move, you know, and we were all watching, knowing what was, what was happening. Uh, and the, uh, poor guy who was, uh, new to our family or just visiting through the, for a meal <laughs> would, would see that. And, and at first, you know, just think maybe they didn't, hadn't seen what they saw and then <laughs> it would happen again. And then we would all laugh and, and we would show him what David had, <laughs> had put under his plate. So that was, just kind of one of the things you know, all of them weren't pranks he was very um creative in how he could fix things and make things work that weren't weren't that were broken that weren't functioning and so he was very gifted 
with that. He did not get that from my dad. My dad could break two or three things in the process of trying to repair something. (laughs) (laughs) He was not mechanical at all. (laughs) But David was. (laughs) I think every American boy's rite of passage is to get a BB gun at some point. And I remember (laughs) getting a pellet gun, which is you know, maybe the next level up to that when I was a kid. Of course, I got into some trouble with it, but you got a BB gun at one point in your life. Yeah, I don't know how or when I got the BB gun. Um, You know how kids are. They just take random shots at anything they think they can hit. I remember remorsefully the first time I I took aim with the gun, one of the first times I hit a bird and killed it right on the spot. And so um, I, I felt bad, and I should have felt bad, and... From then on, I don't think I, I tried to kill a bird. Although, when I was visiting the Gressers, uh, for some reason, my parents allowed me to take the BB gun over to their house. And they were watching me. Mom and Dad were probably gone to some convention or something. And so I, we, I was staying there and brought the BB gun with us. They had chickens in the backyard. And I took aim at one of the chicken's legs and actually hit it and broke it. And of course, that the chicken was hobbling around, and uh, they were not happy that I had uh, disabled their chicken. And uh, uh, (laughs) I think we had that for dinner the next night. uh, I'm not sure, (laughs) but yeah, um, I got into some trouble. That's all I want to say about that. Okay, sure. (laughs) I will be singing down in my heart. The joy was ringing. I'm just a pilgrim and I'm on my way home. No time to tarry cause I'm on my way home. I want to talk about a sensitive subject, but you do bring it up in your memoir about adults who prey on children. I would think back then folks didn't talk about it much or maybe even didn't have the language to talk about it. But these days, of course, everywhere from the Catholic Church to school systems have had problems with this. Do you mind talking about your own experience with that? And what was the reaction? Well, growing up, my parents did not talk to us about sex or warn us against people being inappropriate toward us. I mean, so it was not something I was prepared for. Uh, This traveling evangelist who abused me um, actually had uh, Marinette puppets and uh, had a big stage with, you know, curtains and lights and and all kinds of things. And so I wasn't aware of what was happening, but he asked me if I could help him backstage. Uh, the, the marionette staging was opening and shutting the curtains and whatever else, you know, he needed help with. I think he did need somebody to help him, but he asked me if I could come over after school. My school was only about four blocks down the street from the church, although our 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 house was about a mile the other direction. So he said, why don't you come over after church and um, we'll work with the puppets. And so uh, I said, well, I need to ask my parents if that's okay. He said, no, you don't need to. Just, just come over after after school. Well, I did. I mean, I didn't even ask my parents or tell my parents um, that I was going to go directly from school to the church. And that was when he uh, physically, sexually uh, abused me. I was at the age where um, I was not aware 
and and I it it just seemed weird to me, uh, and I was not really all that put off by it to be honest with you. I just did, I just knew I didn't like whatever he was doing. So the fortunate thing is um, that that never became a issue with me growing up in the sense that I was I was warped. The, that um, momentary abuse, sexual abuse, was something that really damaged me. I just I just saw there's something weird, and I didn't like it, and he didn't pursue it much further, and that was good. Um, so it was to glory to God that just never never allowed it. And I didn't say anything about it till I was in college. So I would have been uh, maybe um, almost 10 years later, eight years later, that I finally told somebody what had happened. When you told, I guess you told your parents, how did they react? I remember trying to tell my parents. Mm-hmm. Um, and they did not encourage me to tell the story. Oh. And so, um, yeah, that was just like, um, they did not say, well, what are you talking about or whatever. And, and they just, you know, that was part of, uh, the silence on that subject. We just didn't talk about it. Yeah. I don't think it was, uh, something that people, um, how can I say that, that the authorities of those people who should be standing up for children were as vigilant as they are today. And it becomes, you know, people, uh, the guy would have been in jail uh, today. But back then, I'm not even sure if he even had the legal um, authority for a child to speak against an adult like that. But things have changed, and that's good because, you know, it, it shuts down some of the things that might happen. It still happens, but I think we now have um, a legal system that is really... Uh, trying to trying to confront a predator like that. On the sunny banks of sweet deliverance, happy freedom land, my immortal home. I'm going there to. Sunny banks of my home, sweet home. I know when I was a kid, I was raised pretty much to be a pacifist. You know, we were never supposed to hit back. And I assume you were raised the same way. Was that correct? That's correct. Yeah. But you talk about there was one exception to that rule. Uh, and <laughs> so if you don't mind talking about that particular incident. Yeah, this is actually at the same church where my dad was pastoring in Evansville, Indiana. Um, we were having vacation Bible school. It was in the middle of summer, and um, dad was teaching the um, older boys in the vacation Bible school, and our class was outside the church. It was uh, We just set up a table outside and uh, I don't even remember what we were doing, if we were doing crafts or we were uh, having some sort of Bible lesson. But this kid next to me kept picking on me and, you know, hitting me and, uh, you know, bumping against me and trying to trying to pick a fight. And I, I was taught not, not to fight. 
my brother Jim and I were only a year apart. We used to wrestle a lot. So um, we never hit each other or fought, but we wrestled a lot and just would roll around. So anyway, um, after a while, my dad, who kept seeing this kid kind of picking on me, somewhat like a bully, um, he looked at me and said, take him. And (laughs) I was, I was stunned. I was not quite sure I heard correctly. And I looked at dad and he said, take him. (laughs) So (laughs) I jumped up and man, I was on this guy and we, we were wrestling and rolling around in the grass and having a good old wrestling match. And, you know, I was pretty big for my age and I was, I was taking him. I was getting the best of this kid. And my mom came out of the church around the corner and saw me and this kid fighting, wrestling in, in the grass. And she broke it up and was really mad at dad for letting it happen because he he, he was just watching us. He wasn't trying to stop us. Well, I, so, so she was really upset with him for letting me do it. I think later on he explained what had happened and she calmed down. But at the moment, she was not happy with, with dad allowing us to fight during vacation Bible school as kids. I was probably about 13 years old when that happened. You mentioned that you've at least met one president, and uh, this was back in 1964. You want to talk about that? Yeah, I've actually either met or been really close to several presidents. The first one was back in the 60s. um, President Johnson uh, became president when uh, Kennedy was shot. And he was running for re uh, for election. I guess he, he was elected as vice president, but he was running for election in the in the sixties. And he was going to do a whistle stop there in Evansville, Indiana, at the airport where the plane cut touches down. He gets out, makes a speech, shakes hands, get back in, and, and drives off, flies off to the next place, next airport. So we heard that it was coming to town. It was in the papers or on the news, and we uh, wanted to go down and see President Johnson. So Dad said, oh, no, no, the crowds would be too big. You can't even get close to him. You want me to hardly see him. And and he gave every excuse he could come up with for us not to go down there. We finally convinced him. <laughs> he gave in after a while and took us to the airport to see President Johnson give a speech. And so... After he gave the speech, he went down kind of a chain link fence. Uh, my guess the chain link fence was about uh, four or five feet tall. And he was coming down the uh, fence, uh, shaking people's hand. Your dad, David, uh, got up on a lamp post or, uh, and was standing there with, with his hand out to shake the president. I think he shook President Johnson's hand. And when he came past me, he was shaking hands with both hands. He was just kind of just touching us more than shaking our hands, but just kind of grabbing our hands momentarily and then moving on down the line. And I stuck out my hand and he shook my hand uh, with both hands one at a time. He shook it with his left hand. Then he came down because he's just randomly shaking people's hands. <laughs> so that was the first time that I shook a president's hand. And later in life, I, I shook uh, Ronald Reagan's hand in Louisville, Kentucky. But I, w- I was close to Jimmy Carter one time. Um, we were at the uh, inauguration for Clinton, Bill Clinton, and then also George W. Bush. 
we had really good, good seats. I had a friend who was part of IBM and she got some seats for us and we were right across from the viewing stand. So we would see uh, Colin Powell and Vice President Cheney and, and different people who are part of the cabinet at the viewing stand, which is right across the street from where we were sitting. And we of course saw George and Laura Bush come walking down the street uh, after the inauguration. So it was really a, a cool place to live. When you live in the Washington DC area, you have a lot more opportunities to see presidents. Long years ago, long years ago, went out and sin, went out and sin. I had no hope, I had no hope, no peace within, no peace within. Down, on my knees. One thing that's part of our family legacy is going to the county dump to get rid of stuff, but sometimes coming back <laughs> with more than what you dropped off. I remember as a kid that would really irritate my mom. The dad would do that. We would all go get rid of some stuff, and then he would bring more stuff back. And as I speak, I look out the the window, and there's a big pile of tires, uh, old tires that I've made into a maze for my grandson. That obviously you know came from the trash. But anyway, uh, talk about your <laughs> memories of all that. Yeah, um, as kids, you know, we just we didn't have television, didn't have really ways of occupying our our time, and so we went outside. And we would play a lot, and uh, we would just find things to do. And we liked going through people's trash. <laughs> and <laughs> David, <laughs> David would um, find. Uh, dumps or at least places where people had dumped a lot of stuff maybe was illegal dumping um, but uh, then we would walk over there or go over there we didn't have a car we would just go over there and and just go through the the dump and and see what we could we could find and so we find all kinds of things and <laughs> uh, I remember finding a small table that the top had come at all come off of and I brought it home and and sanded it down and fixed it up, glued it back together. And that became a piece of furniture we had in our house for a long time. <laughs> uh, even when uh, mom and dad passed away, it was still there. <laughs> you know, So it was not something that was terrible. I mean, they could have thrown it away if they didn't want it, but it was a nice little nice little piece of furniture. But we used to love going through the trash and finding things. David uh, liked to fix things, and so did I, but he was a whole lot more gifted at it. And so we would always, we everything we saw we thought had some sort of usage, <laughs> we did, or we could fix it and make it what it was, or we would make it into something that we thought would be functional. So it was it was a lot of fun. It occupied us, kept us from getting in trouble otherwise. Do you still go to the dump on occasion? I've never gone past some trash, and, and I saw something I thought I might want and pull over and just you know see if it was something that I wanted. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, my wife's embarrassed about that. Um, But there's things that we use all the time in our house that, well, I found and fixed, or I found a way to use use what's there. It actually is a deeper concept than just going to the dump and finding things. Uh, I believe in the uh, biblical concept of restoration. And so when you restore something, sometimes it's to its original intent, and sometimes restoration is refashioning it into something that could be, and that's out of uh, a kind of a broken pottery or broken in the hands of the potter to where 
the concept is of refashioning something or or making it something that maybe not original intent, but very useful. Well, I don't know if you saw this, but about a month ago, I think it was either in New Mexico or Arizona, a young woman had thrown away her baby into the dumpster, and they caught all this on you know the the security tapes. And a few hours later, some people were dumpster diving. Uh, in the back yeah. there, and they found this human baby still alive, and they saved it. And I was thinking, yes. like, oh man, that's that's one of us. Although we never did find a, a human life, but <laughs> but it does, sometimes it does pay off to dig through the trash. Well, our son Daniel went to Wheaton College up near Chicago, and they called it dumpster diving, where uh, kids would move out either at the end of the semester or going off after college for the summer. And they would just throw away a lot of stuff. wasn't bad. They just didn't either. Didn't want to move it. And then the kids who were staying around for a while would pilfer through the dumpster, finding things like lamps and maybe a chair and different things like that that they would put in their dorm room. So it's been passed down uh, to the next generation. Yeah, I, I, I seem to remember I had acquired a maybe a love seat from that very situation someone had left it in the dumpster behind the, at the college and i remember somebody was at our apartment and they commented about what a nice love seat that was i was like yeah it came out of the dumpster and they were from a different walk of life and they got right up off of that sofa you'd be better off not to tell them we got a really good deal on it it's just it was hardly used when we got it <laughs> Oh, the king is coming, the king is coming, I just heard the trumpet sounding, and now his face I see, oh, the king You guys have lived all over, especially, I guess it would come from being a pastor's kids, and of course you later became a pastor. I wanted to ask you about a few places, like, especially that have a special place for me Campbellsville Kentucky now that's where my dad was born and basically where the Buchanan side of the family is from and eventually you would go back to live there for a short time talk about your memories in Campbellsville or you know and how did it maybe differ from other places that you had lived yes dad was born in Campbellsville Kentucky and then of course he went off to college and other parts of life eventually coming back to Campbellsville to live with his mom. Grandpa passed away when I was two, so Grandma would have been by herself. So Mom and Dad came to to live there uh, when they first got married, and that's where your dad, my oldest brother David, was born there in uh, Campbellsville. He tells the story that he was born in a funeral home. I suppose you've heard him say that. Yes. The reason is that the home that... David was born in, uh, he was born in in a house, and that house eventually became uh, a funeral home. So David was born in what is now a funeral home. (laughs) But then uh, when Dad had pastored for a while, uh, he got a call to go to Campbellsville and pastor the Church of Nazarene there, uh, which had only been started perhaps, oh, I'm going to guess five years beforehand. So it was not a real old church. It was a new church. And uh, since he was from Campbellsville and thought he would have a lot of connections there with people, he did. And and also um, maybe be able to 
convinced some of them to come to his church. So we moved there. I was going into uh, my sophomore year of high school. We stayed there two years. So my sophomore year and junior year of high school, I was in Campbellsville. And yeah, it's a, it's a nice town. There's a college there and um, have some good memories there. Had part of, the, part of the band, the marching band in particular, played trombone. And then uh, also had an English teacher who was very, very exceptional. And uh, she's uh, encouraged me. Um, I could possibly go to college if I applied myself. I, I was wondering if I could even get into a college, much less graduate. So uh, that was wonderful years, those two years that we were in Campbellsville. You mentioned Nashville, Tennessee, and you would live there because you went to college at the Trevecca Nazarene. At the time, it was college. Now it's university. And uh, you mentioned before when we talked that uh, Grandpa went there and Grandma also. So you tell a few stories about going there. Uh, one is about this group called The Encounters. It was like a music group that you were a part of. Yeah, it's back when I was in high school uh, there in uh, Indiana. I somehow or another found out about this new, new group they were starting, and Jim Van Hook was uh, putting together a group that he called The Encounters. And I, I found out that they needed a trombone player, and so I uh, got my mom to play the piano, and I played a couple songs on my trombone on, and recorded it on a cassette, and then sent it off to Trevecca to Jim Van Hook, and I got accepted into the group based on that little cassette recording, and I played second trombone in a group that was of 22 of us. It was a, a large group of, I think there were eight vocalists and then all kinds of instrumentalists, uh, pianist, guitar, bass guitar, uh, trombone, two trombones, two trumpets, French horn. You know, it, it was quite a group that traveled around uh, all the, throughout the year. I mean, about every weekend or so, we would be getting on a bus and going to some far off place to have services for the weekend. Uh, so we, all the states in the South, East, uh, they're a part of that region. Uh, we went to, to Florida, Alabama, Georgia, Tennessee, of course, uh, Kentucky. Uh, and I think, I think uh, Mississippi um, is part of that too, um, Arkansas. So uh, all the states, oh, I didn't mention the Carolinas and, and not Virginia. Virginia is part of a different region. But um, yeah, so we, we traveled around a lot and it was a wonderful experience um, being from kind of a conservative place in Indiana, then you're around a bunch of kids that are from a different perspective. Some of them were from Florida, and they have a different view of what it means to be a Christian. As, as far as what I grew up with, I always grew up with ultra-conservative, uh, the way you lived. And so these kids, you know, they were playing rook cards. I mean, I couldn't do that. Yeah. <laughs> but we learned, I learned to play rook on, on a bus traveling around and they didn't see anything wrong with uh, going swimming together. Uh, we called it mixed bathing. It wasn't mixed bathing. It was, it was guys <laughs> and gals in the same swimming pool. But um, yeah, it was an eye-opening experience. Drevecca was a wonderful experience for me because of the professors there 
and uh, the different things that would happen. Uh, those years were just, they were a, a game changer for me and how I viewed the world and how I view what it meant to be a Christian. So uh, that kind of college experience was, was just phenomenal for me. Was the purpose of the music group, the encounters, were they to basically recruit potential students for Treveca or was it something else? Yeah, I think it was a PR group, a public relations group, to where it was a recruiting tool in the sense that when we were having a concert, uh, they would promote Treveca and pass out Treveca uh, literature for uh, juniors or those kids in high school, juniors and seniors, if they were choosing a college. And we would talk about someone uh, kind of halfway through the program would talk about Treveca and mention uh, some of the majors that working there there was a nursing program and different things back then and still and so yeah it was is a promotional tool you have to think that that was not a, a inexpensive investment for a college to have a group of that many people traveling around on a big bus they had it like for three years and then it dissolved it and then about three years after that they they tried to restart the group and i think they did and I don't, I don't know. I haven't been in touch with Trebecca uh, to know what's going on. But it, um, I think it was a great group. And they, the leader, Jim Van Hook, was uh, he's a perfectionist. I mean, he wanted things done perfectly, uh, if at all possible. Um, and so we were we were practicing a lot and trying to get things down. So I remember we were playing a song that modulated up different keys and all. You know, so we were rehearsing this song, and I was playing in six sharps, and I going, I, I can't even name the six sharps, let's less <laughs> play in six sharps. But after a while, you learned to do it. <laughs> right. You talk about one song y'all played that was so exhausting that it took out one of your uh, trumpet players. You want to talk about that? <laughs> it was a song that Bill Gaither wrote called "The King Is Coming." I think the Spear family was the group that really made that popular back then. And we're talking now 70, 71 that uh, Bill Gaither wrote that song and we started uh, singing it in different churches. And it's a powerful song. Uh, it's a very emotionally moving song. Uh, it's talking about the return of Jesus Christ and which is what we hope for as Christians. So, and it's, it was a, it was a powerful song. When you talk about uh, the the voices and the orchestration that we had in that group, it was it was quite good and and very moving. I think it was in Huntsville, Alabama, that we sang the song, and it's it was a powerful song and an exhausting song to play as far as trumpet trombone was. It was it was it was powerful. And so we got to the end of the song and fairly exhausted. And somebody in the crowd, I don't know if it was a pastor, who said, let's have them sing that song again. And uh, our trumpet player nearly, uh, he nearly passed out just for the thought of having to play it again. Because <laughs> it, it was it was a very demanding song. One of the things that came out of doing songs for Bill Gaither is he had um, he had written The King is Coming, but some other songs, and he wanted a demo that he could um, press into a record uh, with about 10 songs that he had written. And one of them was The King is Coming. So 
uh, we, we, the encounters, uh, recorded those 10 songs in the studio there in Nashville. And I played trombone on, on The King is Coming, and it was part of that record. <laughs> but that was kind of neat. Little children and the aged hand in hand stand all aglow who were crippled, broken, ruined. If you had a good time with this episode, Uncle Paul first appeared on the podcast back on In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile, episode 256. Also, my dad, Paul's brother, talks about his days in Evansville on episode 216, which included a pleasant story about some guy making a cheese ball in the nude. In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile is produced by A Closet, A Pocket, and A Suitcase. You can listen to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbeam.com. If you'd like to send us some hate mail, you can email us at SpunCounterGuy at Hotmail.com. See ya, and I wouldn't want to be ya. Shout it for he's everything to him.